Let's pray together. Our fathers, we bow before you this morning. We bow with great praise and great adoration, acknowledging that you are our God, the only wise God to whom belongs all power, all glory, all wisdom, all righteousness and all sufficiency. We thank you that indeed you've given us a grace that's greater than all of our sin in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for this amazing, all-sufficient grace. Thank you that you've chosen us in yourself before the foundation of the world, that you might present us holy and faultless before your throne. We thank you that in grace you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who has endured the curse and penalty of sin, the one who's triumphed over death, hell, and the grave, the one who's seated at your right hand, ever living, to make intercession for us. We thank you today, our God, for a grace that's given to us, the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit, who empowers our worship and our witness, who grants us gifts for ministry and service, who deepens the imprint of Christ's character upon our nature. We thank you, Father, that you have sealed us unto the coming day of redemption. We pray today that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might know more of the sufficiency of this grace you've given to us in Christ, that we might know this living hope that we have in Christ, and that we might know the exceeding greatness of your power. The same power that has raised Christ from the dead lives and abides in us, and it's all of grace. And we praise you today because Jesus is our perfect plea. Father, we thank you that you're a very present help in time of trouble. And therefore, we come not only with praise, but also with petitions. We uh, come boldly to your throne of grace and cast ourselves before you, trusting that you will work in the several circumstances of our lives today to show your power, to show your greatness, to show the all-sufficiency of the saving, sustaining work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Father, we specifically pray for Mike and Lisa Tucker and Becky Davis. We ask, O oh God, that you would pour out grace upon grace upon them. We pray that uh, Tucker's room at Baptist East would be filled with the presence of the risen and reigning Christ, that you would show your healing power and use this as an opportunity to redound further glory to your great name. We pray today for Glenn and Helen Davis and to ask, Father, that you would show your all-sufficiency on their behalf as well. And finally today, Father, we lift up our nation. We pray for men and women in positions of authority and ask that you would give them wisdom and discernment that we may lead quiet lives characterized by peace and godliness. We long for the return of the Prince of Peace when the lion and the lamb will lay down together and we will study war no more. Until that day, Father, might your peace rule and reign in our hearts. We give today joyfully and liberally. Pray that you take these gifts, use them to expand your kingdom. For this we give and for this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 16. And uh, normally I use the New King James Version. Um, I'm prayerfully making a transition to the New American Standard Bible. So uh, if you have a New King James Version, NIV, it may read a little bit different. But um, Acts chapter 16. Do you sing in the, in the car? Uh, anybody sing in the car ever? Come on, let's see those hands. Do you sing in the car? I think I've seen some of you singing in the car. Uh, fortunately, when you sing in the car, no one can hear you. According to a recent survey, nine out of ten Americans do sing in the car, and they mostly sing solo. Um, this is an interesting t- statistic as well. 
Uh, Those who own SUVs are more likely to sing in the car. Women who own SUVs are more likely to sing in the car. And ladies who own SUVs and have red hair are a lot more likely to sing in the car. Um, I confess I sing in the car sometimes. I sing in the shower. In fact, when I sing in the shower, I sound like Michael Bolton. Um, But when I turn the water off, something happens. I I don't know if the water drains out of my ears, the, the acoustics change or... What it is, but we are a singing people. We Americans, we love to sing, we love to tap our toes, and music moves us in, in profound ways. The truth is, we sing when the mood strikes us, and often it has to be a happy mood. Those who responded to the survey said they most often sing rock music. The older the respondents were, the more likely they were to sing country music. Well, the truth is, we can all sing on some level, we can all make a joyful noise. When things are well with us, when things are going our way, but when things are not going well, when things are not going our way, is there still a song in our souls? Acts chapter 16 records the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. He's accompanied by Silas and by Timothy. The first journey, churches had been planted, and now Paul has gone back over uh, the churches that had previously been planted on his first trip. He's visiting those churches, and the trip is expanding into Asia Minor. He is in an area called uh, Philippi with the beginnings of another church plant. In verse 14, the Lord has opened the heart of a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. She was a merchant, a seller, a trader of purple garments. The Lord has liberated a slave girl, an unnamed slave girl, whom the text says in verse 18 had a spirit of divination. She was a medium, in other words, a psychic. And by setting her free, uh, the Lord had proved his power over dark and demonic forces. The result is that the girl's masters are enraged because they've lost the gain and the profit of her services. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the town's magistrates to be beaten with rods. And they're thrown into prison and they're put in an inner prison and they are incarcerated. They are bound with stocks in a very painful position, having had their backs lacerated with many rods. We pick up this morning in Acts 16, beginning in verse 19. And I ask you to follow with me in the reading of God's word as we go through uh, verse 34. This is God's word. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into um, into the marketplace uh, before the authorities. In verse 20, when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole house, or some translations would say household. Someone has written that the church consists of people who sit in a pool of their own tears. The church consists of people who sit in a pool of their own tears. We suffer because we are the offspring, the descendants of Adam. And as a result of Adam's sin and the resulting curse on him and all creation, we suffer futility and frustration and death and alienation in every form of misery imaginable. Paul in Romans 5 and verse 12 and following says that his sin and disobedience opened the door to death and misery. We experience accidents and we experience illness that weaken, debilitate, that wound, that maim and sometimes kill as a result of sin and sin's curse. And how do we respond to the blighting curse of sin? We suffer because others sin against us. We live among sinners, people who consult self-interest first, 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 and first. They consult it first, foremost, and always. They're preoccupied with self, in other words. And because of that, we incur pain and misery and heartache and disappointment. The sad truth is marriages fail. Children sometimes rebel against their parents and the God of their parents. And addicts are not the only one who wrestle with their bondage. Those who love them dearly and those who love them deeply feel the weight of every link in their chain of misery. And when others sin against us, how then do we respond We suffer sometimes because we're sinners. We reap the consequences of our own personal rebellion and sinful choices. How do we respond when the alloys of sin's presence and the remnants of sin surface in our lives? How then do we respond? We suffer because we wrestle against an incorrigible, malevolent adversary who probes every weakness, who nudges and prompts us to misuse every strength. He is One whom Peter describes in his first letter in the fifth chapter, the eighth verse of that chapter, as going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. His assaults are well-timed and they're well-aimed. They're intended to diminish our confidence, our reliance, our hope in the living God, as Umlauf referred to at the very beginning of our worship service. He seeks to undermine our confidence in God's goodness and lead us to despair and a growing sense of hopelessness. How do we respond when we're engaged in hand-to-hand combat with this dark adversary? We suffer sometimes because of God's ultimate plan to conform us to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we've been saved, folks, is that ultimately we would bear the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus. Many years ago, and I've shared this illustration, I think on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning in the class I teach that 
when my wife Melinda and I were dating, we would go to this um, uh, this annual Christmas craft show at the Cook Convention Center. And I have to confess now that Melinda and I will be married 24 years in May, and and she knows this now. And I confess it before you and the Lord and and all witnesses who will hear this that I had no interest in that craft show. My interest was only feigned. The only reason I went was so that I could hold her hand and I could spend the evening with her and I could walk around. But I ran into a into a table there where a man was carving uh, um, horses and cowboys and bears out of wood. And I was fascinated. I'm still fascinated with that kind of ability. I asked the man, I said, sir, how are you able to do that? And he placed a block of wood upon the counter and he said, young man, what do you see? And I said, I see a block of wood. He said, that's your problem. He said, I see a bear. And I carve away everything that's not a bear. A few weeks back, Melinda came into the study in the office area. And she had a bear that had been carved out of wood. And she gave that to me with an attached note. Telling me what a wonderful husband. No, she didn't go into that. But she she had a she had a note attached with it and. She said, you know, after all these years of hearing this story, I thought I would bring you a carved bear as a reminder of our love. Well, isn't that sweet? Thank you. Um, he said, what do you see? I said, I see a block of wood. He said, I see a bear. Listen, when God saves us, he sees the imprint of his son. And he's in the business. He's in the holy, steady work, the unrelenting, persevering work. Of carving away everything in our lives that doesn't bear the image and the likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he's in the business of whittling on us. And when we're brought into the crucible of suffering. And the refining work of God's providence. How then do we respond? Recently I scratched my uh, forearm while doing lawn work. And brought blood immediately to the surface. And uh, attached a tourniquet and quit for the day. Um, when you scratch yourself, what, what comes? Blood, of course. Blood comes to the surface when you're scratched. And what comes from the inside of us when our lives are pierced by suffering? How then do we respond? Is it worship? Is it humility? Is it submission? Is it faith and trust and confidence in God's plan and His good for us? Or is it anger, discouragement, resentment, bitterness, and unbelief? Paul and Silas were pierced by the rod of persecution for Christ's sake in Acts chapter 16. And would you notice in verse 25 their response? The Bible says that at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. How will we respond in our midnight moments when failure and fear and grief and hurt and loss emerge Out of the shadows of our lives and linger like unwanted guests. When discouragement, even despair and a sense of hopelessness settles in like a blanket of fog. Darkening the light of God's presence and the light of God's promise. How then will we respond? Can we sing at midnight? There's some things in this text that I'd like to share with you very briefly this morning if I might. That would encourage us, I pray, that... You and I can, by God's grace and through his power, sing in our midnight moments. Would you notice, first of all, in verse 25, that we can sing when God strengthens us through prayer. 
The tense of the verb in verse 25, they were praying. It indicates that there was a continuous prayer being offered. They were in in the mood of prayer, if you will. The sense of hopelessness and futility, the sense of pain and suffering had crowded them to utter dependence upon the Lord. And this verb indicates that there was a fervency in their praying. They were to use the old Puritan adage, praying until they knew that they had prayed. Prayer is an honest acknowledgement of our weakness. It's an honest acknowledgement of our deep need of God's grace and sufficiency. And our very neediness at midnight drives us to prayer before the Lord. God is not glorified in our meeting his needs. Do you catch that? God is not glorified in our meeting his needs. He's all sufficient. What can we give him? What can we supply that God needs or is lacking? No, God is glorified in meeting our needs. God is glorified in showing his sufficiency. When Paul later prays for the church at Ephesus uh, uh, and uh, at the end of Act, uh, pardon me, at the end of Ephesians chapter three, as he prays for the church at Ephesus, he prays that, that God, out of the richness of his power, the fullness of Christ's power, would do far beyond all that they could ask or think or pray according to the power that worked in them. Paul is saying that no matter what we think and no matter what we ask and no matter what we believe or trust, God is able to go even beyond the limitations of our petitions and our ability to requests. I love Psalm 50, the psalmist there. The Lord says to the psalmist, And the Lord responds to the psalmist in Psalm 50 and verse 15. The Lord says to him, call upon me in the day of trouble. Call upon me. You and I have an invitation to come boldly to the throne of grace in our time of need that we may obtain grace and mercy. It was God's resources, not Paul and Silas, that opened Lydia's heart to hear and to heed, to believe and obey the gospel in Acts Chapter 16, verse 14, it was out of God's resources that this slave girl was liberated from her bondage and being used for another's profit and gain. It was God's resources. And it was God's resources that they called upon in the inner prison, beaten and bloodied. And at midnight, they called upon the Lord. Paul, in a few years, would write these followers of Christ at Philippi, but he would be in another prison In another time, in another location, but he would write in Philippians 4, 6 and say to them in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We have incredible encouragement to pray, to make our requests known, to open the contents of our heart and the contents of our lives to the Lord. The disciples came upon Jesus in Luke chapter 11 while he was praying. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, pray in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We began prayer with a recognition that God is the source of all that we need, of all that we have. All of life is his gifts. And when we bow in prayer, we recognize that. And Jesus said, when you pray, you conclude the prayer by saying, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. We recognize that God is sovereign over all things, that he holds us firmly and securely in the palm of his hands. 
And when we bow before him in prayer, Jesus said that we're to ask in Luke 11. Because everyone who asks receives. We're to seek. Because everyone who seeks will find. And we're encouraged to knock. Because everyone who knocks, the door shall be opened. And Jesus in Luke 11 gives this wonderful illustration. He says, fathers, if you're evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If your son asks for a stone, asks for bread, would you give him a stone? If he asks for an egg, would you give him a serpent? Well, the answer is no, I would not do that to my son. And he says, how much more then will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We have the encouragement of divine promises. We have the encouragement of divine persons. We have Christ, our intercessor, whom Romans 8 and uh, Hebrews 7 says ever lives to make intercession for us there in the presence of God. We have the Spirit's intercession who sustains us in our weaknesses. The truth is... uh, Romans 8:26 says we don't often know how to pray or for what to pray because of our weakness, our infirmity, our our lack of information and knowledge, our lack of discerning what God's ultimate will and plan is. And Paul says that in our weakness the Holy Spirit who fills us and indwells us intercedes in us and through us and for us. Augustine said the best disposition for praying is that of being desolate, forsaken and stripped of everything. Our helplessness is complete at midnight. We feel it. But, oh, brethren, his sufficiency is complete at midnight as well. The Spirit struggles on our behalf with groanings that cannot be articulated, appealing to the Father through us. He cries out, Abba, Father. And the word cry out, Kradzo, it's a shout. It's not a whimper. It's not a whisper. It's the Spirit of God shouting within us. And through us, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, that we belong to him. When we bow in prayer, we have our Savior in heaven interceding for us. We have the Spirit of God struggling on our behalf with groanings that cannot be articulated because he is our sovereign intercessor. The Spirit of God knows well and fully and flawlessly the the, the will of God, and he prays accordingly. It's the Spirit who prays that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. It's the Spirit who prays through us that the plan of God, the purpose of God, would be consummated and carried forward fruitfully. Paul and Silas were praying at midnight out of their sense of need. How did they respond? They responded with prayer. And that inner prison, they were not alone. The Spirit of the Son was there. To give voice and strength to their prayers. How might we respond in our midnight moments? How might we pray in our midnight moments? Well, we might pray along these lines. Father, do something in these circumstances that will bring maximum glory to your name. Jesus said in John 14, if you ask anything in my name, the Father will do it. That he might be glorified in the Son. So we pray, Father, bring maximum glory to your name in my midnight moments. Father, show me what you're trying to teach me in these circumstances. Father, in your way, in your time, show me the purpose for this suffering. And Father, show me what you want me to do as a result of this. Dear friends, 
Would you be willing to allow midnight in your life to accomplish God's work in your life and through your life? Would you be willing to invite God to walk with you by His Spirit so that you are strengthened in prayer and comforted by His presence? Would you be willing to confront the feelings of discouragement and pity and despair with the precious promises of God and with the strength of His Son and of the presence of the Spirit of God so that they become a healing power in our lives? We can sing at midnight. When God sustains us as we bow before him in prayer. Secondly, in our text this morning, we can sing when God satisfies us in praise. Paul and Silas were singing hymns of praise to God from this inner prison, having been beaten and placed in restraints. You know, the truth is, at midnight, the real object of our worship is often revealed. Paul Later would write the believers again in, uh, at uh, Philippi, the Philippian letter. And the recurring theme in that letter in Philippians is joy. It shows up in the, chap- the first chapter, the second, third, and fourth chapter. The fourth chapter of Philippians, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. They could rejoice because they were, had someone in whom to rejoice, not something they were rejoicing in. They were rejoicing in someone, not something. That's what Habakkuk does in his uh, third chapter of that little minor prophet book tucked away there almost in obscurity in the Old Testament. In Habakkuk 3, the prophet says, though the figs will not blossom and though the olives may fail, and though there be no grapes in the vineyard and though there be nothing in the field and there be no livestock in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in God. I will joy in God for he is my strength. And here's Paul and Silas. Their hearts are lifted in praise and worship and adoration to the Lord. It can feel sincere. To praise God in tough times. It can feel shallow and sometimes devoid of heart when we're going through midnight moments. Suffering, in fact, can choke the words of praise in our throat almost. Sometimes it's a matter of obedience, an obedience that's an expression of love. This text is a tremendous text in verse 25, and I noticed this this week, that Paul and Silas were directing their praise to the Lord, not about him. They were singing to him over and over. You find that in Psalms where the psalmist calls us to sing to the Lord. Maybe they were using the church's inspired hymnal, the Psalms. Maybe they had memorized passages of the Psalms or maybe they had been beaten and they had portions of the Psalms with them. I don't know. But they were drawing on their knowledge of the Old Testament to give voice and praise to God. And they were singing to him. They were praising the Lord because he's a very present help in trouble. They were blessing the Lord with all of their heart and with all of their soul. And maybe they were using portions of the Old Testament to give voice to their worship. You and I are fully equipped to worship when we're most acutely aware of our littleness and God's greatness. And may I suggest to you today that worship is never more precious, praise is never more sweet than in our midnight moments because it's never more costly when it's offered as a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. 
When we can barely utter praise because of our midnight, we can praise God for who he is. We can acknowledge his character and his attributes. We can praise him for his majesty, his power, his holiness, and his wisdom. Revelation chapter 4 pictures a great scene of worship around the throne of God. And they were worshiping the Lord because he is the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. They are worshiping God because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Upholding all things by the word of his power. We can admire vocally the attributes of God and stand amazed at his love expressed in his saving grace and mercy. We can take a psalm like Psalm 103 and bless the Lord with all that is within us. We can bless his holy name and forget not all his benefits who forgives all our iniquities. Who heals our diseases in time more often in eternity by a coming day of glorification. We can praise God because he satisfies our mouth with good things. We can praise God because his mercy abounds in our lives. And as a father pities his children, so he pities those who fear him. He's given us richly all things to enjoy. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, every good and perfect gift comes from him. And folks, the truth is, I, just to be honest with you, I want God to give and give And give and give and give some more. And then I'm discouraged and disappointed and hurt when he chooses to take away that which he has given. The right response to a gift is gratitude. To say thank you. You don't have anything today that you claim your own that ultimately did not come from the hand of God. But when God is pleased and for his own sovereign purposes and reasons to take away what he has given, how will I respond in that moment? Would you today be willing to thank God for his gifts that he's given you? Are you willing to thank God when he chooses to take them away? Your health, your job, your reputation, your financial security, your home, a promotion that you had set your heart on. Maybe even someone that you love and care for deeply and dearly. Would you be willing today to ask God to loosen your grip on his gifts so that you might cling more firmly, closely, tenaciously to the giver of those gifts? Would you welcome even invite God to have his will, to have his way with your possessions, with your privileges, with the people that you love? Would you accept his promise that he really is more than enough and the one who satisfies the deepest longings of our heart? Would you be willing at midnight to open his word and to read back and give voice to the praise from his inspired word? Would you be willing to lift a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord? We can sing in our midnight When God strengthens us in prayer, we can sing at midnight when God satisfies our heart as we praise him. And thirdly, and very quickly and finally here in verse 26, we can sing when God sustains us with his power. You notice the foundations of the prison trembled before the mighty power of God. The prison doors burst open and the chains were unfastened and God granted liberty. He granted freedom. Listen, he granted freedom not to 
leave the cell, but freedom to remain. Not to get out of there. Not to leave the circumstances, but the power to remain. The power to remain because they're leaving, in verse 27, would have cost the jailer his life. Because they're leaving would have forfeited an opportunity to share the life-transforming message of the gospel in verse 30 and 31. When God grants us the grace to pray, and God grants us the grace to praise at midnight, sometimes the chains are intended to fall not only off of us, but they're intended to fall off of those who watch us and who listen to us. Sometimes we're free to walk away from suffering. And what a great praise that is. But sometimes we're freed and liberated to remain in the place of suffering so that others may come to know him and his power and his saving goodness. And both require the power of God. Later in Second Corinthians 12, Paul would write about seeking the Lord for this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan sent to buffet him repeatedly. God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And then finally, Paul says, then I will glory in my weakness. That in my weakness, the sufficiency of your power might be seen. And I'm telling you today that it requires the power of God and suffering and disappointment and brokenness and heartache to remain contented in that season of midnight and still to pray and still to praise and still to share the hope that you and I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering is never more intense than at midnight because night lacks the clarity and kindness of the light of day. Resources seem diminished. Loneliness seems more close at hand. Prayer seems to come naturally in those moments of distress. But finding the notes of songs of praise seems impossible. But, oh, beloved of God, you and I can sing at midnight. When God strengthens us as we open our heart and our lives to him in prayer. When he sustains us and satisfies our hearts. As we give voice to praise, sometimes as a matter of obedience and an expression of love to Him. We can sing at midnight when God sustains us by His almighty power. Today, dear friend, would you confront your feelings of helplessness and despair with truth from God's Word so that His truth can sustain you and become a healing, satisfying, liberating power in your life. And would you determine by God's grace and by his power to sing his praise no matter what? Corey and Betsy Tinboom were single Christian women. Many of you would recognize that name immediately. And they were of Dutch ancestry. They were reared in a devout, godly home. The menace and the dark pale of Nazism was spreading over Europe, threatening to plunge Europe into a new dark age. Their hearts were moved with compassion for Jews who were being rounded up and tortured and tormented and persecuted even to the point of death. And they felt they had to do something, so they began to hide them. They were apprehended, arrested, and sent to a concentration camp. And once in the concentration camp, they were stripped bare. And they were paraded before the leering eyes of German soldiers. And Betsy turned to her sister, Corey, single women who had been reared in a devout home. 
who knew nothing of sin's degradation or humiliation. Betsy turned to Corey and said, We have the opportunity, the joy, to enter into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. To enter into the fellowship of him who was stripped bare and humiliated before the eyes of sinful, depraved men. Might we enter into that fellowship of his sufferings with joy? And they did. And they rejoiced. Time after time, they rejoiced. Not because they had something in which to rejoice, but because they had someone in whom to rejoice. They could sing at midnight because of God's presence and His power, because of His promise. May we sing at midnight as well, because He's the same God. And He has said that I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you this morning, undoubtedly in a worship service of this size. There are people here today who are hurting, and I pray that you would pour in the oil of your Holy Spirit, that you would pour in the balm, the healing medicine, the power of your gospel, and that Christ would exalt himself in all of our circumstances today. There may be some here today that suffering has, has silenced the song, and might as an act of kindness you restore a measure of joy in spite of the circumstances. There may be some here today who've never called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. And you've said that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Might you move them to call upon you and might you then respond in saving grace and mercy. We commit all of our needs, our lives, indeed our circumstances to you today. And we do so with joy and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen.